Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Liberty Portal podcast. Today, we've got some historic news. The Supreme Court of the United States has passed down a few really landmark decisions, among them affirmative action, student loans, and freedom of association. And right now, we have some exclusive footage, the official opinion of the Supreme Court of the United States. We're going to go to that right now. Check it out. When me and Brad first met, I didn't think we'd get along, but it turns out we kind of agree on everything. Your, Your racial, racial identity, identity is the most important thing. thing. Everything should be looked at through the lens of race. Jinks, you owe me a Coke. We both have a lot of opinions about people of color, even though we barely know any. I say colored people, but as long as we're classifying them, we both think minorities are a united group who think the same and act the same. And vote the same. You don't want to lose your black card. Sorry, I don't know. I just think we should roll, roll back, back discrimination laws so we can hire based on race again. Jinx, now you owe me a Coke. Hey, tell them what you told me yesterday. <laughs> White actors should only do voices for white cartoon characters. Been saying that for years. Stick to your own. Us white people, we have so much privilege. I agree. It is a privilege to be white. Ask him about interracial dating. All I said is that black men who date white women have internalized racism, and white men that date ethnic women are fetishizing them. Guys against interracial dating now. Like, am I being pranked? Did Boomer <laughs> put you up to this? Ugh, you know that taco place is white-owned? White people should be making white foods, like crab macaroni and cheese, no seasoning, not even salt. It's like he's a mind reader. I mean, I've been pushing for segregation forever, and my man does what? I created an improv comedy show exclusively for ethnic people. That segregates comedy on my birthday. White people need to stop wearing dreadlocks, and they need to stop appropriating black people's music. Shaved heads and country music, the way God intended. You know all white people are racist. I'm listening. Even if you have a black wife or a black friend group, you're still really racist. You know, he just kicked a guy out of the organization for having a black girlfriend, but if you can promise me he's still really racist, we'll consider letting him back in. Black people should only shop at black businesses. I guess the only thing we really disagree about is I think white people are the root of all evil. But what did I tell you, though? If we can narrow that down to a certain group of tiny-hatted white people, I think we can come to an understanding. Technically, I don't consider Jewish people white Neither do I. Okay, okay. <laughs> so for those of you just listening and, and not watching that, first of all, you should watch it. It's hilarious. It's by a comedian named Ryan Long. Uh, he's got a podcast of his own called Boys Cast. It's hilarious. And, and also for those of you not listening, you probably didn't know that one of those people was wearing a shirt that said woke and the other one was wearing a shirt that said racist. Can you guess which was which? <laughs> I bet you can't. Oh, yeah. That's probably kind of confusing if you're just an audio listener, right? Yeah. Probably, you know, yeah, that's a good point. But I think that really kind of, uh, well, it illustrates the point that they, are, they have very, very similar views on things. Uh, so should we just jump right in after that, uh, <laughs> that nice start to things? What, what's, what's going on with SCOTUS and affirmative action today? So the short of it is that equal protection under the law means eliminating all racial discrimination, including racial discrimination that benefits historically disenfranchised groups. Can That's you, what was decided. Okay. Can you can we break that down in layman's terms or just you know go over that one more time? Yeah. Equal protection under the law. That's just the idea that the law shouldn't bias towards somebody because of some arbitrary characteristic, right? Um, it should exist to protect everyone equally. Another way to like shorten that down is equal rights. The old classical liberal, like origin of the conservative, liberal, libertarian, something we all fundamentally should agree on because we're Americans, is this idea that there are, is no special class that deserves special rights, right? Perfect. Uh, and with that, if you say that anything, what we've done is that since the you know Jim Crow era is we've made a determination that, well, in order to balance that out, we're going to give a special new class of people who are historically disenfranchised, meaning historically not as um, included in the body politic, not as uh, excluded uh, because of their race, uh, special advantages. And what we've had is, you know, the overall context too to this to this story is that 
over the last 20 years, there's been a series of court cases challenging this and kind of slowly, you, you know, eroding it in a sense and kind of limiting it and trying to deal with the fact that you're asking a legal institution, the Supreme Court of the United States, which is whose job is since the very beginning to arbitrate what does the Constitution actually say? Because the Constitution's supposed to bound the powers of government and what the government can and can't do and try to get them to reconcile a 1776 vision of that with the needs of the 20th, 21st century. Um, and what we've seen is a lot of compromises in that direction where they've said, Hey, this is a thing that, you know, we need, right. That we need. And, you know, we should have a deference for academic institutions, uh, who, who, you know, need to do this. Uh, if you go back to Brown, it's like, you can't do the opposite. You can't discriminate. And then it was, well, we need to positively reinforce these communities. And the last decision, uh, before this one, I, I'm forgetting the court case name right now. I just had it in my head too. uh, basically said, Hey, and sometime in the next 25 years, this might become not needed anymore because even that, even that court case indicated that it was contrary to the spirit of the fundamental of the U.S. Constitution and equal protection. I mean, that the law should apply equally and protect everyone equally. If you are a small business owner looking for exponential growth, you have to connect with Adam Thune at Intellectual Patriots. He will revolutionize your business game and help you get to the next level. Adam can streamline your business practices and advertising strategies to improve your bottom line. His expertise in data engineering means he can build you the systems you need to collect and analyze market data. His mission is to provide you with invaluable insights to fuel your success. From grant writing and business proposals to digital systems integrations, even AI management, Intellectual Patriots is a one-stop shop for cutting-edge solutions. Don't wait another second. Visit intelpatriots.com to learn more. That's I-N-T-E-L patriots.com. And so what was going on prior to this under what is called affirmative action was that uh, specifically these cases that the Supreme court was hearing were about education and college admissions, correct? Right. Right. And, and obviously affirmative action has bigger implications. You look at DEI, you look at ESG, you look at all these other things that are institutions in our society. This doesn't apply to all of them, but it's a major shot across the bow for them. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause these institutions that we're talking about aren't exactly public institutions per se, right? Harvard, receives government funds, but it's not exa- but it's not like the Department of Education or something like that. Sure. Uh, and it, it has a, um, you know, we got 50 years of legalized racial discrimination in the college administration process. And I mean discrimination here technically. We kind of think of discrimination as the kind of preference setting that is bad, but discrimination isn't, isn't necessarily that. Like the larger old school word of discrimination is just to discriminate between people, say, in a good or bad way. Just to to create a distinction or understand the differences. Right, right. right. So the case here, and especially the case evidence, is really particular, right? And it it really clarifies it. So I'll I'll do a quick quote here from um, uh, Reason. The evidence that both universities engage in racial discrimination, particularly against Asian applicants, uh, applicants, is staggering. According to the ruling, over 80% of all black applicants in the top academic decile were admitted to UNC, while under 70% of white and Asian applicants were in that decile were admitted. At Harvard, an Asian-American applicant in the top academic decile has a lower chance of being admitted than a black student in the fourth lowest academic decile. So that last part is really, really big. So at Harvard, an Asian-American applicant in the top academic decile, the very best performers, has a lower chance of being admitted than a black student in the lowest in the fourth lowest academic decile. 
what that demonstrates is it's not merit that is conducting this, right? It's fundamentally that view of what they call the lop, right? Which is lopping off the top to make sure that the right racial categories are achieved when it comes to admissions. So there isn't a drop or isn't a increase in particular groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and similarly, Kyla, I shared this to you in the discord as well. If you want to pull up this chart it's from a tweet, but it's from, I believe a similar source as, as this article, it, it illustrates it in a chart um, showing that, you know, the top 10% of, um, of academic students, you know, 15% of white students are admitted. 12.7% of Asian American students are admitted. 56% of Asia, of African American students are admitted. 31% of Hispanic and 14% of all. Um, which again just just illustrates the the disparity there. Right. And uh, so that's what they're trying to correct is to say, look, it doesn't matter what what color you are, your origins, your anything about you, other than have you have you worked hard, have you achieved you know, good grades and, and gotten yourself to a point in life where you are deserving of admission to a really established and esteemed right. higher education institution. Well, right? it's even saying that you can include other backgrounds that are important, right? Um, there's actually a great video here also, Kyle, that we could check out. Um, you guys are just throwing everything at me right now. Yeah, yeah. It's, a rea- it's, it's, it's down below the reaction from the left. It's the reaction from an Asian student, individuals first. It's about a minute, 40 seconds. It's really, it's really quite good because it kind of demonstrates how else you can think about it in terms of those questions without asking the racial question. All right, yeah, here I got it right here. I think that this whole business, when we're deciding based on race, at least as a factor, that sort of assumes that all people of a certain race are sort of monolithic, that minorities are monolithic. And I know at least for Asian Americans, sort of the way that we're perceived is hardworking, no charisma, no character. And and you see that in those, in, in the Harvard case, you'll see that um, that's how they view Asian American students. They see us sort of as bland and sort of lacking character. And I think that that's sort of what happens to all minority groups when you view us first and foremost as a certain race, and then just look at individual characteristics that we have later. I think we should flip that around and view our individual characteristics regardless of what race we are, first and foremost. And I think that's that's the most appropriate way to, to do this. Um, because there, again, you can look at recommendation letters. You can look at, um, there's so many other things that you can look at. And I know that Bumi was mentioning sort of this holistic admissions process. In that process, you have so much data. You have access to your parents' income, for instance, if you might need financial aid. You have access to information about the school district that you g- grew up in. And I think that information actually gives you knowledge of the student situation and sort of what advantages or disadvantages that you might have in life because any student of any race at an underfunded school district won't necessarily have the same opportunities that somebody at a very highly funded school district and so by looking at what opportunities they had available and how they were able to make the most of that is not something that requires you to look at race when you can actually pinpoint that the experiences that a student might have had um through other factors that don't involve race and that was shared by ABC News, which is somewhat surprising that they would they would share an opinion such as that. You would think they would be a little bit more mm-hmm. biased. That, that direction. guy killed it. You did a great job. I mean, yeah, very clearly. I mean, he he states unequivocally. You know, individual characteristics should matter more than a monolithic characteristic. You know, viewing all people of a certain race through one lens mm-hmm. doesn't make sense right and additionally that's saying that the administration the administration the administration the administrative process here to admit new students 
already asked the questions and continue can under this continue to ask the questions. A lot of them asked ask, ask the important questions like what were the barriers that you had to overcome so that we can put your test scores into a context. Now the additional to that is to is is it really matters that the student is a is is attached to the institution that can help them realize their individual potential, not just this like really simple uh, kind of silly idea that by putting certain people of certain colors into certain institutions, we're going to make things better, right? So the question is, and this is best begged by Thomas Sowell, which we also have something on, uh, on this issue of does affirmative action actually benefit the minority students who participate in it? And I, and I also want to point this out too, that this is from you know a Senate hearing in the 90s. So this isn't exactly a new question, guys. And the academics of this, meaning like the study of this from great scholars like Thomas Sowell, who is a absolute national treasure. If you don't know who he is, shame on you. You got to go read his books. There are too many of them to read. <laughs> but well, he's just a, got a, a, good one, a good one on that covers a lot of the subject is actually uh, one of my favorite books by him is uh, Black Redneck, White Liberal. Mm-hmm. And it kind of really dispels a lot of this, um, these ideas that people can have floating in their minds. But uh, yeah, let's jump to that video right here. Do you believe that mandatory proportional representation benefits minorities? No. In fact, I think one of the great handicaps that uh, blacks and other minorities face across the country is that they are systematically mismatched with universities in the admissions process. That is, if, if Harvard feels that it must have X percent of blacks, and if the pool is such that they can't get X percent of blacks at the same level as the rest of the Harvard students, they're going to take those blacks who would have succeeded in some state university and bring them to Harvard where many of them will fail. Or MIT is a better example that the average black student at MIT is in the bottom 10% of MIT students in math. But he is in the top 90% of all American students in math because MIT students are so phenomenal in mathematics. Something like one fourth of all the black students going to MIT do not graduate. You're talking about a pool of people who score at the 90th percentile in math whom you are artificially turning into failures by mismatching them with the school. Back in the, much earlier, you had a great increase of blacks in the universities through the GI Bill. You had nothing like that kind of attrition from that process because the the student went wherever he could be accepted, wherever he met the normal standards, and the government simply paid the money. I I, I gather from your comments about MIT and Harvard that you don't think there's enough blacks out there who are qualified to fill the number of vacancies allotted for them in those schools. Is that right? Is that what you're well, saying? Well, the word, word qualified is really misleading. Well, the question is whether or not they may, they are like the other students at Harvard and MIT. Well, okay. Well, so there's not... So, so they, they may be perfectly qualified. The same student might go to, through, God help us, I hope there's no idea from Illinois, uh, Illinois Institute of Technology and do well. Uh, but what? there's no reason why he should fail at MIT. There's, there's no prestige in flunking out of the Ivy League. I got it. So... But my point is, you believe there are not enough black women and men out there that are the same as white women and men to be able to go through Harvard and MIT. If there were, it would mean that the whole history of oppression had done no harm whatever. Well, so the answer is you don't think there are. I'm not, I just want to no, figure no, out what you're saying. The question what I think is a factual matter. So factually, uh, you're no. saying factually there are not enough. Factually, this study's already been done by Clipgard at Harvard, and he, the, the, the figures are all there. Anyone can look them up. Okay, no, I, 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 I just want to hear from you. I, I want to know. Uh, Biden uh, is incredibly articulate there, even as he's such a dummy. Like, he <laughs> is not getting what he's trying to corner 
one of the smartest people on the planet into some corner of saying, you're a racist, Thomas Sowell. I mean, come on. That's fascinating. I mean, that's not ever something I've even considered around this subject is the fact that, you know, just getting in is is really just the first hurdle. Then you actually have to excel. And if, if you're mismatched, no matter what race you are, if you're mismatched with the institution you're in, you're not going to do well. It's not going to it's not going to necessarily just make your life better to go to a prestigious school. Right. And what it's additionally that the point is that if they went to, went to a better match school, they'd be in the top percentile of that school and would more likely to succeed. And when you think 25% fail, how many of those people would have done better at another co- college? And now they have this chapter in their life where they failed, where you put them into a circumstance where they will fail. Right. And rather than just allowing... So what it's pointing to is that greater justice may have been done if we didn't have this arbitrary lens where we're saying there's a certain set of uh, classes who are special, who get special access, special rights to institutions. And by benefiting them, we're, we're doing that. Not to mention that the, this case is both, this, the case wasn't decided on that. This is just a supplemental point. The case was decided on how much it negatively impacts Asian students, especially, hmm. uh, who are overrepresented at that level of academic achievement, uh, probably underrepresented at that level of academic, of like be, of graduating Yale and getting the additional accolades of like, what's it called, where your parents graduate from an Ivy League, so you get in on legacy. Uh, legacy yeah, so they don't benefit from that nearly as much as white folks because it's a white institution historically but in the in the past. And so there's a there's an evolution that has to happen there, but those are people who are actually being devastated by this. So one of the things that Thomas Sowell says in one of his books that I always really liked is that, you know, what it means to be a minority has changed substantially, right? It used to mean a statistical... Uh, you're you're statistically less abundant in the population. Uh, you're that that's what it means to have minority status. What it what he thinks it means, and this is Thomas Holtine speaking, is it a group that you can feel sorry for, right? So that's why the point, you know, in like the Ryan Long video, Jews don't count, even though they're a historical minority, right? They should by the you know by the statistics count as minority, but for some reason because they're uh, we've decided you don't you don't you can't feel sorry for them, so therefore you're no, you no longer count. Same thing with Asians, Indian Americans, other things. Additionally, that the Supreme Court case itself completely blows apart all these categories. It says, what, what, what are you just saying, Asian? What, Japanese, South Asia, China, Korean, all these are different groups with different histories and contexts in America. And by just putting them into this broad category of Asian, you're actually, you're doing them a huge disservice where you're, you're, you're boiling out a tremendous amount of detail that's important if to, to fit your own goals. Not to mention black, difference between... African American versus an uh, a, a you know a second generation Jamaican J- Jamaican is tremendous. You can see that when it comes to immigrants from Africa, they're that tremendously different. When it comes to social um, outcomes after the fact that they've you know immigrated here, and, and then and then Hispanics is even more like they were like we don't even understand your category of Hispanic. It doesn't make any sense to us like that. I mean, so the the whole the whole mechanism of like these big groups to cram people into in order to get a social outcome doesn't work and what would work better probably individualism right Right. probably admission based upon individual characteristics moral integrity uh your ability to do the job right your ability to do your your knowledge of the facts those ideas would probably do a better job absolutely and i think you know a lot of people probably lose sight of the fact maybe don't even know that the richest man in the world is an (laughs) african-american elon musk He's, he's from South Africa. <laughs> our, our boy Elon. Now, do you, do you think that affirmative action worked in Elon Musk's favor when he was uh, applying for college? Do you think that was a factor for him? I don't 
did he graduate college? I, I don't actually. I know. actually don't. <laughs> I don't even know his collegiate <laughs> I, 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 I know he lived in Canada for a while. That's right. He immigrated to Canada. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyways, so reaction from the left, right? So the yeah. Biden administration also announced they have several plans uh, to help colleges continue the effort to recruit diverse student bodies in light of the decision. There's an interesting component of this that a lot of the right is freaking out about right now, where it's saying there's a section where it says, you know, students can still talk about their racial backgrounds in their applications. It's just that universities can't use that to discriminate. It's actually mentioned in the, um, uh, the minority decision saying, hey, this is something that we can use. But then in the but then the response to that, uh, the majority decision fun, pretty much says, no, you can't. <laughs> so there's a tremendous difference between the students free speech to be able to say, hey, because of my background, this is who I am. And this is how this is how my racial identity informs part of my character. Per- perfectly fine by this decision. They make that absolutely clear. What it says is that the the university cannot qualify or disqualify based upon those criteria. That's what okay. it says. So a question I have here is how does how do we go about enforcing the effect of this decision right how do you tell a university you can't make that decision based on race are they not just going to turn around and say they're making it on some different uh different justification and also what is the end goal here is the end goal to have equivalent admissions across like percentage wise across all races what's the outcome of this decision yeah so i think basically what it says is that it's not constitutional by the Civil Rights Act to do this, right? That's that's all it says. If you have a case, you have to bring a case, like a civil case or a, a legal case in order to prosecute under this decision. And then hopefully, theoretically, the court system will uphold the higher court's decision, right? So if, for example, the next round of statistics of admissions from Harvard doesn't change substantially, uh, then you file suit you basically do a um a findings right where you're like grabbing the data and get to analyze it yourself uh through a process and then you um if you find that they're still making decisions this way you can sue harvard and get money out of it well that that, that is kind of the thing is these colleges are still going to have every incentive to um discriminate based off on race because they're going to have to have that like equality metric like how diverse is their student body and because these things are helpful for donations and getting all the stuff like this is a money like people have incentives right the the universities have incentives so like they'll not say that they're discriminating based off race uh, but they're going to continue to do that regardless like it's the same thing where all these different protected classes for businesses for whatever reason like you know, like a business will kind of discriminate a person for whatever reason. And technically they're not supposed to, but like at the end of the day, they have to make profits. And if they think that somebody's not going to be beneficial to- towards them uh, because of whatever reason that the protected class thing says that they can't, like they're going to make that decision in the end. And you might not be able to like see in them or like, they're not going to say that this is the reason I did this, but it's going to be a reason why they did it, right? <laughs> right. And that's one of the things is like the fundraising letter says, hey, we have this many black students in our student body now and look how racially diverse we are. It's never going to tell the fundraiser, the alumni, oh, and 25% of our black students are failing. Yeah. Right. 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 So not, like that's the... What matters is that we have a very diverse campus and give us more money, right? right? So one of the things too is when good things happen, what, what right-wingers tend to do is say, well, this doesn't fix every problem, so it's not that good. Right. When it's like, no, this is a tremendous win for 
uh, for against racism in the sense of like we want a norm of society that allows people to be able to you know basically be considered when especially when it's a government institution we could talk about private institutions separately but at least when it's government or government connected or government funded institution to not bias against people for their racial you know characteristics because there's something inherently undignified there's something that that steals your dignity it says like you're something less because of the color of your skin or something arbitrary like your background like that right like you couldn't succeed without this assistance without this this leg up so you know, and then and then it provides you. uh it provides um like it gives resentment in other people that aren't benefiting from the affirmative action too mm-hmm. which if anything that just is going to instill more subconscious racial tendencies because it's like well all these people are getting you know they're getting all these extra privileges because of whatever reason i didn't do anything to deserve not not getting those privileges why didn't i get the scholarship or whatever because of you know it might be asian white whatever um so like those ends up like there's a psychology there that is damaging to the collective, right? Yeah. Well, and I think that that's a very clear corollary with what was also going on with the student loan debt forgiveness issue, right? Because you had a lot of people who took out massive loans to go to school. You had blue collar working class people who decided, hey, I'm not going to take on that debt. I'm going to go get a job, start working, not go to higher education or perhaps fund it myself or you know, through family endeavors or whatever, if they're fortunate to do that. And then when the debt gets forgiven, you know, earlier uh, last year by the Biden administration, a lot of those people were up in arms saying, hey, what what the heck? Like, I I didn't take out this debt. So why are they getting free money? Why is the government putting the finger on the scale for them and not for me? Yeah, we got a great throwback video of Elizabeth Warren being told exactly this by a blue collar guy who worked two jobs, worked evenings, worked overtime to put his kid through college. Uh, and uh, do good by his own child and not ask a dime from anybody. Uh, and, uh, of course, she just laughs in his face. Oh, yeah, I remember. So you can see the guy, he's standing behind her. She turns around. Uh, I just want to ask one question. My daughter's getting out of school. I've saved all my money. She doesn't have any school. Am I going to get my money back? So you're going to pay for people who didn't save any money, and those of us that did the right thing get screwed. No, it's not even. Of course we did. My buddy had fun, bought a car, went on vacation. I saved my money. He made more than I did. But I worked a double shift, worked extra. My daughter's work since 10. So you're laughing. Yeah, that's exactly what you're doing. We did the right thing, and we get screwed. That's all right. Classic. Based. Hey, base. Add a boy. That's a good white pill right there. Yeah, that guy's just a normal guy who went to an event to go ask a good question, right? And he's making the point that you know his story, in particular, is shows the injustice of the college loan redistribution program, uh, and it was struck down this week. So hey, also additional Yahoo, right? Good Yahoo for, us. for yeah. hardworking people, all right? Yeah. Well, and it. it it demonstrates how problematic all these systems are, all these like, like all these mechanisms that we have in place and how much they disrupt the incentives of everything. So nobody can actually get all these like proper price signals. It's like, what am I supposed to do? Like every incentive for kids in high school is just like, you should go to college, but it's not right for most people. It's not financially correct for most people, but everything is telling you just like, Oh, you're just basically going to get this free money. And, you know, like, oh, you know, and you're, you're kind of like brainwashed into this into this way of thinking. And then 
afterwards, like the people that ended up making the correct decision and they may have, they, it might've been better for them to go to trade school or, uh, do something entrepreneurial, not go into the academic field. They made the correct decision, saved their money and did something like that. And, you know, and now these people that made the, the improper decisions, the poor decisions to just party for six years. Cause that's kind of how long it takes most people to graduate is six years now. Like they're just going to be like, Oh, you're good. Don't worry. You know, like, mm-hmm. like gonna pay that, that guy has every reason yeah. to be mad about that. Well, exactly. And even in addition to the the pain of knowing that your buddy who went and partied, you know, is going to get, you know, the student loan debt forgiven on his behalf it is compounded by the inflation cycle that occurs because of this. Right. I mean, you think about it. What's the university's incentives? If they know that student debts are going to get forgiven, you think they're just going to keep prices the same? No, they're, they're going to raise them because they know that they can. And, and, you know, where's that money coming from for the government to fund this this bailout of student loans? Well, they either have to tax the American citizen, the hardworking Americans, even more than they already are, or they have to print that money. And so that's going to, in, in, in turn, increase inflation as well. So it's no matter any way you slice it, no matter any way you look at it, it really is affecting every American citizen to do this for a very specific group of people who who took on student debt. And not to say that it's not right to go to college, but you should you should consider you should consider more of the the cost benefit of going to college. And I heard a really good take on this from the All In podcast where <clears throat> Jamath was talking about uh, how banks, student lending institutions, if they had to properly underwrite, like analyze the risk, uh, the cost benefit of a given degree, if they were able to say, okay, the earning potential of an engineering degree is vastly higher than the earning potential of a liberal arts degree, they would offer the money to that engineering student at a lower interest rate, right? To say, it's more likely that this student is going to go out into the world and make good money and be able to pay this back and also be benefiting society, be benefiting the economy, perhaps more so than someone doing a, a more esoteric degree or something that's less applicable to industry, to business, to, to growing the economy. I'm not saying you shouldn't get a liberal arts degree if that's what you want to do. But it really is something that doesn't have as much direct correlation to earning potential. So economically, it doesn't make as much sense. It should cost more. And this is anecdotal, but like I've talked to several business owners that they're they're like, I got to stop hiring college educated students, like kids coming out. They're worthless to me. (laughs) Like, like, like so many people have all said, it's just like, no, that like 19 year old that decided not to do it. Like they are like some of the hardest workers that I've had. You know, not all of them are right. It's going to be the case, but like there is kind of it, it i it seems to me that a lot of like business owner types small business owners they're they're hiring these kids and they're regretting those decisions often so it is just something worth considering on the practice like maybe if you have an engineering degree different story but if you're just kind of like a traditional liberal arts student it, that it might not be actually helpful for you entering the job market going down the road. Yeah. And it could also um, be weighted towards, you know, what careers we need to fill. If there's a, I mean, it, it should be market driven, right? Like exactly. if, there, if there is a deficit of welders, fabricators, electricians, plumbers, which there is in this country, you know, we have this aging population of skilled tradespeople who are trying to retire, but they literally can't because there's no one to replace them. So who are, who are general contractors going to call if there's not another electrician coming up underneath you know, the, the master electrician, that's a serious problem. We need electricians. We need plumbers. We need people who are going into skilled trades who are able to keep the world running literally and fix stuff when it breaks. Not, we don't need everyone in the country, college educated, 
And, and I'm really, I'm honestly really glad that that has shifted, that that narrative has shifted. Because when I was in high school, there was only one place to go and that was college, mm-hmm. right? If you wanted to be somebody, if you wanted to make it, you had to go to college. They, they, That's they, just not true. They show you the fancy chart and it's just like, this person didn't go to college and they only made this much money. This person did go to college and they made so much more money, right? right? They show you that when you're a senior in high but school. But they don't tell you how much money um, that person spent to yeah. make that much money. Yeah. It's, it's now it's a lot. Well, you know, and, and, and a lot of like, because like, it used to be considered, and it still is to a large degree, it used to be considered that signal is like this person is like, they're going to be good for a job. And it's just becoming increasingly where it's become so oversaturated now. Like it used to be kind of like that person's a go-getter. They went to college and and, and they're doing something, something with their lives. Now everybody goes to college. Right. Like there's like inflation on college deg- degrees and they don't mean anything anymore. So right? the value's down. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's also probably a statistical problem there, right? Because you have like the engineer grouped in with the social worker. And then on the other side, didn't go to college, you have the tradesman grouped in with the high school dropout, right? So like there's a tremendous, each one of those steps is going to is gonna change your outcomes. Yeah, and, and you can look at the data. Level. Yeah, you can let, look at the data and pro- probably try to find whatever narrative you need to in there, right? Right, but, right. Mm-hmm. Right. We also have an interesting ruling on the Supreme Court on freedom of association. So the Supreme Court majority ruled Friday that the Christian graphic artist who designs wedding websites can refuse work with same-sex couples. The court ruled 63 for designer Lori Smith, despite a Colorado bar that bars discrimination based on, on sexual orientation, race, gender, and other characteristics. Smith has argued that the law violates her free speech rights. And which is a very interesting question for our dynamic, right? Because this is something that the that there's always been a conflict on from between norms and our vision of law, right? So our norms say you ought not discriminate. That's kind of a jerk move, right? If sure. someone's gay, don't be a jerk, you know? So, but can you, do you have the right to? That's a different question. And so then if you apply that to the college loan thing, that's also an interesting dynamic, right? Because it's saying, because of the Civil Rights Act basically said, hey, even private individuals can't. There are three different Civil Rights Acts. The first two didn't include that, just said government can't, right? Which would have solved the public school issue, would have talked about, and it would have been ended a lot of the issues that happened with government schooling and other different like beaches and uh, public places. But it would have maintained the ability for people to freely associate and discriminate in private residences. This says you can discriminate in private residences but you can't discriminate when it comes to college administration processes. You can discriminate on um, grounds of sexual orientation, but you can't when it comes to race. And so we have this interesting, like our, our social order is very confused about when is it just to discriminate? When do we think about as a norm that people ought to be cool, right? And be nice to each other and not do mean things like, you know, what she's saying is, Hey, I, Sure, she's being mean, but she doesn't want to work for these people. She shouldn't be forced to work for who she doesn't want to work for. I'm going to push back on that. I don't don't, don't know if she's being mean. Well, I I think, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to say (laughs) what I think about her. What I'm trying to do is fairly summarize the way the social order thinks about discriminatory practices, like deciding I don't want to work for somebody because they're gay. Go ahead, Kyle. Well, it's... Is it not like she has a very set religious belief? Like she's a she's a fundamental Christian that believes in a in a very specific social institution that is marriage between man and woman, right? So is is it not discriminatory to do the inverse of that of forcing her to do something that goes against her own religious beliefs, right? Like like is that not mean to violate her freedom of association? Like that's mm-hmm. like that's that's where this 
freedom of religion, freedom of association. Like what is actually mean forcing somebody to do something that they, that goes against who they are as a human. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Right. Or, or your ability to just be like, I could just go get a different cake. Right? Well, that's where the libertarian <laughs> answer becomes really clear. One wing of the libertarian answer. Right? No, you two. have to bake the cake. Dave. Yeah. Right. You have to yeah, bake yeah. it. Bake the cake. Nazi. <laughs> well, wait, 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 what, what are the two wings? Why would one side say you have to bake it? And one side say, no? well, one is kind of like touching on the metropolitanism, what I'm talking about, which is like, Hey, people ought to generally be cool. Like, don't, don't, don't be a jerk to people just because they have a different sexual orientation than you or in, and deny your services for that. Right. It's like a normative, what you ought to do. Libertarianism doesn't give you a lot of content for what you ought to do. It, it does give you some, but mostly what it says, what you ought not do, what's like, don't hurt people. Don't take their stuff. Um, don't steal from them. Um, what do I miss there? L- libertarianism is a political yeah. philosophy about the force that government has. Yeah. It's, it, it's not like a philosophy, generally speaking, about like morality between individuals. Right. So the other side of that would say, hey, the government isn't, isn't violating equal rights. There's no government in this. This is a private institution of private people deciding who they want to freely associate with. And so people have the right to do that. And, you know, even if that isn't a cool move, you shouldn't, you shouldn't do that, but we're not going to make a judgment here because the question that we're asking and answering is what is the just use of force? Is it just to force someone to work for you? How do you distinguish that from slavery? Yeah. Yeah. Difficult question, right? I mean, like, obviously, you know, and then that, you know, if you apply that to socialized medicine, all libertarians agree, but when you apply it to someone who's refusing to uh, design a wedding website for gay couples or bake a cake, uh, it suddenly gets a little bit murky for some people within uh, that movement. I think conservatives come down, obviously, on on one side of it because they have a much more greater sensitivity to the religious sacred, right? Where libertarians don't, right? So we're more like if the black Israelites are saying, hey, we won't service Jews, uh, I, people rightly go like, well, that's a jerk move, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, be cool, man. Like, you know, but yeah. while, you know, and that's a religious belief. Well, so mean, where do we draw the line? Well, it seems like the line is largely free association for private, no free association, uh, equal rights for the public. Well, and there, there tends to be different axioms of belief. Like a lot of people came towards libertarian-esque principles for very different reasons. And a lot of these metropolitan libertarian types, they, they came for much more of a libertinism and kind of a much more running away from God because God chains me down. <laughs> like there's a, there's a very strict atheism that exists within a, a certain wing. So I think that they have certain inclinations when it comes to something like this of being like, oh, Christian person won't do thing for this because for this, for, and for like, uh, the libertinism tends to be much more of like a hedonism, let love kind of thing like that exists very much in the ethos of a certain wing of the libertarian. uh, So within that, a a person who might subscribe to that uh, perspective would suggest that a private business owner should be required to perform a, a service or create a product for that kind of person. Gary Johnson literally said that he was like, yeah, bake the cake. Yeah, and, so was and you had kind of the place. metropolitan libertarian people saying like, yeah, like they were kind of on board with that, right? I mean, or That's not so saying anything at all. That's right. so interesting that or or, that, or that not could, saying, and sometimes the not saying is a big. It's the definite. The silence is deafening. Yeah, <laughs> right. but but if if something else were to happen, then they would jump on board, right? Like what people choose to put their attention towards is usually a big indicator on where the axioms of their belief lie. Right, right? but it's also like there's also a group of libertarians who are into it because they just want to be jerks. 
right? <laughs> like as much the as some trolls. of them, yeah, some yeah. of them are into it because they are like, hey, you know, I really want to, I'm metropolitan. I want everyone to feel accepted and loved and I want to run away from God, libertinism, that sort of thing. Well, and, that's and there's great. also ones that are like, I want this. So it gives me a private right to be a, just a complete jerk to everybody. And neither of those are good good ways to found your political philosophy. Well, right. There's probably ethics. a third, right? Which would say, <laughs> you know, hey, we should try to be ideologically consistent here and apply the the law equally. And, and if it's a situation where it's two people who are voluntarily associating, or if that's going to be okay, then shouldn't it also be okay to voluntarily not associate? Mm-hmm. Right? Even if one person wants to and another person doesn't, it's not like you can force someone to sign a contract. You know, you couldn't force a a kosher deli to to make you a pork chop right mm-hmm. or or a hindu to cook you a burger mm-hmm. like and these are you know similar issues i suppose but like, but you can parallel. go to the court and say they discriminated against me because i'm gay right and then it <laughs> there's all these mixed incentives that exist right? or even right. just because i'm not the same religion mm-hmm. right i'm not i'm not kosher i'm not uh jewish so you know they they didn't cook me the thing i want so they're discriminating against me because i'm not like them i don't believe the same thing as they do that doesn't seem fair yeah there's like there's certain sensitivity dials we has a culture right so our religious sensitivity dials are way low in the west and it has been for a long time while our sexual orientation and racial sensitivities are cranked way up right Meaning so, we don't care if you're if you're religious generally we don't care if you're religious like if you're getting discriminated against right 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 so but if you but if it's discrimination on these other things we think that's way more important gotcha. it isn't clear to me philosophically and i would like to hear the the case of, for this why Racial, like why discrimination against somebody because of their religion or forcing someone to, to violate their own personal conscience is okay uh, when the other and like uh, while you know it's not okay when it comes to race and I think I think both of those are problems right neither have like a perfect solution right and one of the things like earlier we said like this isn't the Supreme Court case doesn't solve all problems when it comes to affirmative action right there's a lot more work to be done sure. The, the libertarian vision here doesn't solve all problems, but what it does is it creates, does create mechanisms of knowing who the racists are so that you can have accountability against them, right? So if you now know who will not design your gay wedding website, don't frequent that person, right? And if you support gay marriage and you don't like this person because of that and you're not a Christian, maybe, maybe you make the, that decision as well, right? If we can boycott, you know, Bud Light, you can boycott this person. Sure. Right? And that's just one of those, like, using keeping the civil domain within the civil domain while also in, trying to encouraging a certain amount of you know social tolerance of people saying hey we disagree that doesn't mean we have to go out and fight in the streets it just means we can civilly disagree and and move along with our lives and we can disassociate yeah <laughs> like right like part of the freedom of association is also the ability to disassociate from people that you might not have common ground with and you can just peacefully just like okay i'm gonna go over here i'm gonna go over here i'm gonna own a taco shop you're gonna own that whatever other shop and and we might see each other and do business with each other but we don't have to be best friends right, right. <laughs> like we can just move on and, and live peacefully right mm-hmm. is there a feeling in society that everyone has to be best friends or everyone has to tolerate yes. everyone else it's the communitarian impulse. It's it's right? the general global, like neoliberal global order thing is that everybody has to come together and homogenize culture together. Um, the, the, this is very much what I believe is like the center of that ethos. Um, you know, they don't necessarily talk about it that way, but it's very much just like, okay, we have all these groups. That's the melting pot, uh, the melting pot philosophy will strip out all the cultural identifiers of everybody and we'll all be one big happy family. Um, right. And mm-hmm. that's kind of what they're, they kind of try to push everybody in, 
uh, into one big pot. But right? that's impossible, right? It's it's just not that's it's, not a realistic it's, outcome. It's psychologically impossible. <laughs> like well, people are going to have into indicators that will kind of separate people from each other, and that's just a natural part of being a human, right? Right. right. And, the, the, and that's to be fair. That's also an impulse on the Christian right. Yeah. That says we're all going to agree on God, and that will make everything better. Yeah. Right. N- Nietzsche would argue that that was kind of the beginnings of it. <laughs> right. Right. Well, that that we had a common. That the Middle Ages are defined by these, you know, hyper-religious, small group societies, and that we maintain from, okay, the ancient era all the way till the pre-Enlightenment era, a tremendous amount of people who were in small group, tight-knit, very religious communities, and then that unraveled, right? And with the unraveling of that, we still have that desire for those sorts of communitarian impulse, um, and one of the things that we're kind of struggling with is how to navigate the social order in the world, the world of reality, given the fact we have these brains designed for that for a large portion of our history and a world order that says, wait, wait, we're going to pause on that. We're going to go for peace first and we're going to settle disputes through free speech and through civil processes and through free association and disassociation and you, and, and we're not going to use force. That's the Enlightenment idea. Uh, oh. And what we keep, and a lot of the anti Enlightenment pushback we're getting is people on both the radical woke left and some of the right is rejection of that premise. That if we just had a community to tell individuals how to live, then people would have purpose and meaning in their life. As opposed, and, and reject the burden of the individual deciding for themselves what their, what their meaning and purpose is. So you're saying it's more deeply ingrained in humanity and individuals collectively and individually to settle disputes with conflict, to focus on the tribe, focus on the community, focus on, you know, my group, family, whatever you, you want to call it, uh, versus the enlightenment idea of, Hey, we're, we're all going to get along and we'll figure out these things diplomatically. That's a newer idea from a, like an evolutionarily evolutionary standpoint than the idea of I'm going to protect my own and at the expense of the other. Right. The, the, one of the easy like shorthand cuts, I'm not sure if this is technically right, but it, it, it seems to pattern well, is before the Enlightenment, most people's identities were formed in cults. Is that the right word? <laughs> Cult might be the right word, right? Like it's like an identity that comes from the city or the nation or the ethnic group or whatever that you're part of that informs the individual how to what their place is within the social structure. Uh, and the, the, the limitating part of that, the individualist response to that is like, well, what if you want something else for yourself? What if you don't want to be a blacksmith or a miller, right? That's why your last name is Miller, right? It's because your family's are millers. And that's the only thing you get to do in your life is mill, right? Maybe you don't want to do that. So the, the, the realization of the individual's capacity to reject their background and become something else, that's the dream of America, of leaving the old world behind and coming to a new place where you can adopt a new personality, a new potential for yourself and realize your individual potential in a state of freedom. Not asking for anything from anyone else, but rather by having a set rules that are that are relatively fair and not bound up in this old world social order that says you're necessarily who your parents were. That idea we're still struggling with today. We're still, I mean, we have like these counter-revolutionary ideas that are kind of pushing back against that and basically saying, no, no, we got to, you got to be defined by your race. You have to be defined by your background or by who your parents were or where you grew up or what school you went to or whatever. Uh, and I, I, that's just what both of these issues are teasing at that in these polarities. The answer that it seems to me though, it's always most satisfying is to say, wherever we can, we should shoot for encouraging 
social tolerance and peace while saying you have the right to associate and disassociate because that's the only way I can really think through this question that navigates both those polarities in an effective way. Um, to kind of quasi counter or expand on that, maybe, uh, I do think that culture tends to exist very much in a Pareto distribution and you probably are going to have Pareto distribution is that kind of 80% of it's the 80, 20 rule typically on, on things. Um, 80% of people are going to find it extremely useful to exist within their cultural identifiers. And you're going to probably have like 20%, if not less than that, that are going to be the kind of roguish outcasts that are willing to go and venture off into other cultural experiences and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and things like the nation, the city, the, the religious kind of whatever denomination you exist within. Those are very useful cultural identifiers for understanding like who's your tribe, who you can trust and things like that. And I don't think that it's going to be just, I think individualism is very good for certain people. I don't think most people want it though. Mm -hmm. Most people need that tribe element to survive and they're very comfortable. They want that. Most people don't want the freedom of individualism because it's very scary. Most people want to kind of be like, we're all on the same team together. Mm-hmm. Well, and no matter how individual you are in any era of humanity, we have been dependent upon the tribe, mm-hmm. right? If you're outcast from your tribe in a prehistoric era, hunter gatherer era, you can't just go hunt by yourself and be very successful. You need the community. You need a group of people to help, you know, just survive it, it, period. And, and these days in the world of, you know, the post-industrial era, we have specialization where I'm good at one thing and you're good at another thing. And in order for you to have shoes and, and me to have food to eat, we need to trade those things in within the, the system of the economy, right? Which uses money as that intermediary, that, that liquid that allows us to all like get the things that we need. So no matter how strident and individualist you are there's there is an element of underlying community that we all need deeply mm-hmm. from an evolutionary standpoint but also from basic necessity standpoint right. as well that's the that's a great beauty of using the monetary medium is because you don't care what the end user is right you don't care what the languages or color of the person who built your automobile you just care that it drives well right? yeah so totally. the, there's a tolerance that's kind of built into that and like an underlying value that's more important for the average person in a market economy and while I, dis- while I agree that like there's a, you know, a parade of distribution there and that 20% there, the American bet, the Western bet was if we, if we commit and activate that on the enlightenment, that it would create innovation and progress for everyone, moral and civilizational progress. And it has. The, the record there is so stunningly clear. And if you want to know about that, read The Rational Optimist by Matt Ridley. You can find it on libertyportal.com. And we got to do an ad read on, on these because I'm out of my drink too. You guys, you guys need to pop another. Yeah, I, I, need, to, I need to pop another. Right. Well, before we do, we'll just call attention to this beautifully designed 4th of July special edition label on the Zesty Nargarita. Happy 4th of July. Get that Nar. Would you pass me one more too? Please. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Zesty Beverages. They're on a mission to unf*** the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you. Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. So I, one of the things that I think 
one of the outlines of maybe where the world is going right now uh, is Bology's the network state right now, where I think what we're seeing right now, and I see this hardcore in like the crypto space where I am right now, is we're starting to find like new communities that are forming that aren't geocentric in any in any way, like. There's like groups and identify and cultural identifiers that exist that are online right now. Pudgy penguins. Or, pudgy penguins. <laughs> pudgy penguins is an example of this. It's like it's it's like an exclusive club of people from all around the world, right? But I, I think it's more broadly speaking, it's not just that. Like a lot of people that kind of believe in this like tech optimism, tech accelerationism type of thing, they're all formulating in like hubs in specific hubs around the world, but they're all connected via the internet, right? So like we're watching this new this new form of cultural identifier kind of come into being right now. And it seems like Bo- uh, Bology's network state hypothesis is becoming more and more true as I'm as I'm watching that all play out. Um, especially as we're kind of like, we're, we're no longer the unipolar world right now that's just dominated by the empire. And then you have like the Eastern China, Russia stuff. Like we're starting to splinter off a lot more right now. And you're seeing that in regards to the free association question, yeah. which is that, is that we're kind of forced into association by politics. And what the internet does as a disintermediary is that it separates that out. And it says that the large space that isn't politics that you can find your community, like you're a furry. You can go find. Yeah, you can go be a furry somewhere. Yeah. Why are you right? looking at me so intently <laughs> when you say that, Joe? Do you have something? To, do you have something to tell us, <laughs> guys? I like dressing up like a dog, doing weird things. No judgment, bro. No judgment. Kyle might judge you, but I'm not gonna. Uh, I'm gonna judge you. <laughs> That's fair. And this is coming from the guy that LARPs as a penguin on Twitter every yeah. day. <laughs> there we go. We got something in common, you and I. We're not so different. <laughs> Follow me at Captain Quigley <laughs> for, for my penguin adventures. Oh man. Well, it's in, it is very interesting. And I actually, going back to this, you know, I want to know what you think. Is there an economic under under layer of the the racial tension that exists in the country? Like, how has economic, how has monetary policy, fiscal policy affected what's gone on in the United States that's caused these rifts that we find ourselves battling with today? You know, it's a economic inequality is driven by. No, Kyle knows what I'm going to say right now. Well, no, I was just going to say, you're asking a libertarian to ask, why is monetary policy the crux of all evils? <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be an episode of this podcast. I queued it up very deliberately. Okay, oh, man. Well, okay. So a tremendous amount of economic inequality is driven not only by, you know, of course, federal policy. Inflation has its effects. And obviously the per- people who are hurt first are the people who can't afford the rise in the price prices, who don't have assets that are also increasing at the same rate as the general price inflation. Second to that. If you look at the statistics of the implementation of the minimum wage, tremendously bad for the black community, right? So the young African-American workers were put out of labor for decades because of the minimum wage. Uh, the impacts of that were devastating for them. Right to, uh, not not right to work, but pretty much 1936 um, Labor Act on the federal level, uh, basically making unions compulsory, uh, discriminated vastly, very terribly against African-Americans uh, who were in the trades saying, hey, you can't, you can't call yourself an electrician anymore or a plumber or whatever because you're not part of the union. Uh, and and w- was there some sort of restriction for African-Americans to join? N- not explicitly, implicitly, right? So it said if, if your workplace basically was unionized, you get to, you're not doing that. And then guess who didn't make the cut? I right? see. And, and, and like the effects. It was, a, it was an implicit way to, to execute a, 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 
a racist move against African Americans by saying you can't we don't want you to be part of the union. I don't want to I don't want to make it like this is what their intent was, but sure. it's definitely the effect okay. is that unionization in its origin, not today. I'm not, I'm not making any claims about a union today, but in its origin, where it were were literally combatives. You had black unions versus white unions and stuff like that. Like this was this was as the atmosphere at the time, especially in the American South, was racialized in this dynamic. And unions were an expression of that. That's a lot fairer way to say it. Okay. And so one of the things that happened with the you know the Labor Act is that it kind of became a forcing function for some of that, and we saw a lot of black labor die. Mm. Uh, and there was a um, not literally die, but. Die off. Away. Yeah. Not, not, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, the, beyond that, I mean, it, there was also obviously lots of civil things. I mean, when you look at like racial redlining, zoning, all these other things that happened with the our makeup of cities, um, there were there's so many different things you can point to when it comes to government policies, a driver of, of income inequality that very specifically harmed the black community and, and minorities first. Now, that didn't apply to and the, and the and Thomas Sowell is a great. Uh, resource on this. It didn't apply to lots of other uh, uh, racial groups, both for proscription by the kind of white elites who are, you know, there, like they weren't targeting Asians as much as they were Hispanics, as much as they were blacks. Uh, but there was also, you know, the fact that, you know, where they were in the context of the time and the de- makeup and the actions of those racial groups, like Irish, for example, had a very different history with these sorts of institutions where they were originally very bi- uh, biased against and then found an avenue to get in on the inside. There's a whole philosophy today that says that that's somehow evil thing to do. Um, Indian Americans, very similar story. They now have a higher uh, average wage than white Americans, many other Asian Americans in the same category. And then you have other racial ethnicities that are kind of in the same buckets when it comes to Middle Eastern folks that have a very high net income and have racial enclaves that are very prosperous in, in the United States. So it isn't that it was... It's too simple to just say it was just the white majority versus everybody else, right? It was. It's a much more complicated story that has a lot to do with both the negative impacts that were done through government policy and civil action by large civil players that were terrible. Look at Henry Ford. Look at you know um, other guys who are tremendously racist against Jews and other racial minorities. But then also the actions of those other you know racial groups that had you know good institutions right within them. Um, Go to go to school. Don't get have kids outside of wedlock. Get married and have kids within a stable relationship. You know, like good advice, good good um, moral institutions that reinforce good behaviors, which in aggregate produced better outcomes for those racial groups that were kind of living within that. And I, that's becomes very clear when you look at Jews, Catholic, Irish, and um, 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 oh God, I'm, I'm losing right now. It's a particular uh, African ethnicity that has very high net income in the United States right now. I'm like totally gapping it. Isn't it Ethiopian? No, uh, Elon. Elon Musk. Yeah. <laughs> South Africans. South, Af- <laughs> South African. No, that's not right. I'm there, curious. I want to dig in Jamaican, on the- Jamaican. Uh, 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 Jamaican Americans. I, I, for I know that's a big thing. Uh, is the splinter and almost like civil war between in the black community of like those that came those that have like their American heritage based in slavery. And then also the Jamaicans, like I know that's like a very big thing. And Jamaicans are just like way outperforming, generally speaking, um, traditional African-Americans. And Mm -hmm. it 
tends to be and there tends to be like a splinter that's just like well you weren't slaves like us right thing right and i think any any side that only tells one side any any story that only tells one side of that equation isn't really fully interacting with the content as i see it and 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 i see this as an alien right i'm a i'm a kid who grew up in rural montana right so this is all academic to me i'm just looking at this from the outside saying i'd you know, I didn't grow up with any racial bias or or any of these kind of institutions as neither barriers nor like informing for anything. So what what isn't? I just kind of read and see what I what I'm seeing and trying to interact with it honestly. And and I see two sides of an equation: institutions that are that are oppressive and have lots of problems and are pro and are, are real, like the criminal justice system, is tremendously negative towards both you know African Americans uh, uh, as a bias, like you can see. African-Americans who spend way more time in prison versus, you know, non-African counterparts for the same crime. Um, you can have, uh, and then, and then you can break it down lots of other ways. Men serve longer times than women for the same crime and all kinds of other breakdowns that are unequal within our bears of society. But then there's also the actions of individuals really, really matter too in a state of relative freedom, right? So we could be, we could be the, the Raj in India and nothing would change. Everything would be informed by your by your ancestors, right? You could have permanent. We could be America in the American South, where everything's locked in your social class and by your race and by your by your parents' income. So, because we have the amount of freedom we do, which is not perfect, and we have these government barriers, we still have a tremendous amount of like a dislocation from that narrative of it's just the barriers. There's a tremendous amount that matters when it comes to your civic and individual institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, something to add on to as well with your kind of labor union stuff is I believe that is the original origins of the KKK was post-Civil War. It was very much these these uh, Southerners that were just like, they're taking our jobs type of a thing. Like that was the original like first iteration of the KKK was like, oh, well, now we're out of work because like all these, you know, these former slaves are coming in, in and they're going to work cheaper and do all this stuff because, you know, they went from working for zero to working for some amount of money and they're willing to take less, you know, less pay. And they were, just, they were starting to get all the jobs. And then you have, you know, all these people that are just like, we want those jobs. Like they're taking all of our jobs right now. And that was the original was that resentment that formed the original KKK mm. and being out of work. They couldn't afford new clothes. So they took bed sheets. And <laughs> yeah. They dressed themselves in them. Yeah, they got the pointy hat. Yeah. 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 <laughs> classic, classic yeah. tale. I want to dig in on the, uh, on the minimum wage thing, because I think people have this picture of the minimum wage as being necessary for providing a, a living wage for someone living in an expensive world, you know, how can, is it, is it better? No, let me frame it differently. Is it, is it not predatory for a company to offer someone a, a wage that is below minimum wage? Why, why would that be there? How could someone live on that in an economy, uh, such as the one we're in right now? How could that work? Right. So it is difficult because you have market uh, destroying, signal destroying mechanisms like the fed you have signal destroying mechanisms like government policy and housing that is artificially raising the price of housing uh asset manipulation that's happening with all kinds of mechanisms of government um you have high taxes that could also destroy these signals and make it very difficult if taxes are too high uh it makes it very difficult for people to be able to even on low wage be able to earn money right so if you give someone who's already on low wage like we talked about a little while ago we got into discussion of immigration the more you tax labor with labor taxes, the more people are going to go into a dark or, or uh, into a black market. 
how do people live? So the question is who sets the labor and can someone la- rationally set a price for all labor uniformly that actually matches where people are at, right? So even an example, I'll give Montana an example. Some time ago, I was at a committee hearing on an increase in the minimum wage in Montana. A guy came from, have you ever heard of Yak, Montana? I have actually. Yeah, yeah. It's a famous one, if only because of the name. And it's so obscure and tiny. Ran a small burger joint there. Had just a couple employees, three or four employees that work with him. Uh, right now, they are all paid minimum wage. And he's, and basically what he testified is like, look, you raise this a dollar and I'm out. I can't do it because the economy in Yak is not the economy in Billings. It's not the economy in Denver. It's not the economy in New York City, et cetera, et cetera. Like the prices are contextual and they're a signal for the local knowledge that exists. So uh, anytime you have a government agency, no matter how empowered with knowledge they are, how much power they have to change things, they can't anticipate the actual effects of or know what the right price level is to set. So my point is, is that a minimum wage is set by the individual's skills and the market clearing ability of them to clear those skills, right? So their ability to sell those skills to employers and uh, the desire of the value that that will contribute for you know, individuals. Because it's important to remember that labor exists to produce something to serve someone else's needs. Otherwise, what's the point of labor? And the reason why we attach a price to it is to compensate the individual for the time and the skills that they do when they actually create value for somebody else. And if you mess with that, if you change that, if you set a floor on it, you create a whole new black market. And unfortunately, what happened when it comes to uh, especially black youth at the implementation of minimum wage throughout the 1950s and 60s was a tremendous amount found themselves in perpetual long-term unemployment. And that had devastating consequences uh, for the black community. Additionally, that the, the, the long-term consequences of, at the same time, the implementation of welfare and larger welfare schemes mm. hooked them into a government dependent scheme, which also had lots of bad effects when it comes to separation of the black family. Once again, don't listen to me. Read Thomas Sowell. Like, yeah, obviously, no one's going to believe me when I say this, but if you read Thomas Sowell, you will find the studies here are absolutely rock solid, and it's so pervasive um, uh, when it comes to uh, long-term marriages within the black community, uh, out-of-child wedlock, all these sorts of things. And it's not, and I don't say this as like uh, how you know, like, oh my goodness, they they did something wrong. What I see them is responding to government incentives that were evil in the first place. That if the government just would have stayed out of it, we'd have a far more affluent, far more integrated with the economy, black community. Uh, but because of the racial, se- you know, ra- you know, slavery, racial segregation, and then government policy, which was mostly labor policy supported by the left, um, unfortunately, devastated the black and, and welfare policy devastated the black community over that time. Not to mention abortion policy, which was also tremendously devastating to the black community over that same period of time. Man, it's like they. Yeah, it's like every government policy that there was was devastating to the black community. Yeah, yeah. I mean, drug laws. I mean, the drug, the drug. <laughs> I mean, like, you yeah, can, that's a whole other thing. Even count them on, right? The, yeah. Yeah, we, we literally punish, you know, a certain kind of um, uh, crack differently if it's in crack form or if it's in you know cocaine powder form, right? Because cocaine is a upper class white yeah, people drug. Yeah, and 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 the and when it's in a different form, it's in crystal, then it's bad. Uh, the um, the prosecution of the drug war, specifically by Nixon, was targeted towards the black community and trying to end the jazz cabbage. Right? It's uh, it's it. You can't look at a single one of these 
and not see a government finger right in the middle of it. I mean, the CIA and the FBI's actions, I mean, to get into the, again, the intelligence community is always all over this stuff. Actions at this time when it came to um, the Black Panthers and Martin Luther King and all these other uh, black leaders messing in that. I mean, for God's sakes, the FBI tried to get Martin Luther King to commit suicide. I mean, like, like <laughs> you got you got a, you got a, a, an actual government enforcement agency trying to get an American citizen to commit suicide, right? And and like that's a that's a known fact. And we're over here saying, oh man, the black community—if they just would have got their act together—well, would they're being prosecuted, persecuted by the government? Of course. I mean, like with all these institute, all these laws, and and the, some of them very—I'm sure very very well meaning, and some of them obviously maliciously meaning. In either direction, what we're talking about is the reason why we have a two-tiered society like this isn't because of freedom. It's not because we have a free and open society defined by markets and free cooperation and individuals settling disputes with association and free association. What we have is a government-managed everything starting on the state level for a lot of this stuff. Jim Crow, the biggest problem with Jim Crow... Sorry, I'm like ranting. You know? I love it. The problem, biggest problem with Jim Crow wasn't that... Yeah, not not just that private owners were discriminating. It was that the government enforced discrimination so that there could be no market alternative. Once again, I'm quoting Thomas Sowell. The government itself was saying, hey, if you do these things, we will have a problem, right? To private business owners. And then there's the cultural pressure and stuff like that. And those are real. And I'm not saying they're not real. But you couldn't get the kind of bottom-up opposition because the government would disrupt that mm. with government action. So, so, so is there like inherent racism in the actions of the government during this time? Yeah, oh, definitely. Oh, you, Jim Crow. You, you, yeah. you, want, you want a quote here from uh, the Nixon from uh, Nixon's like big domestic advisor? Oh, sure. That I just found. Um, so, uh, John uh, Ehrlichman. He was asked. He was. Nixon's advisor in domestic policy. Uh, You want to know what this was really all about? The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. So there's no wonder why. I mean, it's it's. I don't wonder that's so it's so fascinating to me to see you know, Hotep Jesus types, right, who are both anti-government and and saying we need a black identity that is separate from this this mainstream black identity. I, I mean, I can understand that, right, because there's so much there. I mean, it's like being. Native American and anti-government. Of course you would be, right? Well, obviously. I mean, yeah. I mean, because these are the people that are committing a genocide against you, you know? I mean, it have been for centuries. It makes sense. So, like, it frustrates me how much of libertarian thought is dominated by people who look like me. When, to me, all I see are people who, are, who aren't white, who are paying the biggest cost of a big state that's trying to get up and, and fix all the problems. Because well, that same not that, that same that same impulse to fix the problems also empowers them to persecute the people they don't like. Well, pe- people want their saviors, right? Like the savior complex is very real. I think when people are generally stewing in resentment um, about whatever things, rightfully or wrongfully, whatever it is, yeah. there is this kind kind of psychology of like, well, someone's going to come to save us, or somebody will kind of force the actions against my aggressors or whatever, right? right. So like. The, the idea, because like the general, the general libertarian ethos is very much a, 
you know, pick yourself up and kind of do things yourself. But the average person is not is not set in that mindset. The average person wants to stew in resentment because resentment is a very powerful drug. Sure. But then you do have the breakaways, right? Thomas Sowell is an example of that. You know, uh, you know, the Hotep Jesus, the whole Hotep movement is very much of individualistic. Uh, let's kind of create a new identity type of movement. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not familiar with the Hoteps, it's, look it up. It's interesting. I know nothing about it. I, <laughs> yeah. I'm, not, I'm not trying to be. I, I, I just know Hotep Jesus because <laughs> yeah. he's fun on Twitter. He's been on some. <laughs> he's been on some podcasts. Already, but, uh, he's he's edgy and funny. You know, but I, I think the average person in whatever their situation is, like it doesn't have to even have to be a racial thing. It can just be they have some sort of problem that exists in their life. They will stew in that resentment forever unless they figure out some sort of way to break out of it. Mm-hmm. And you know, the individualism, I think ethos is an antidote to that but it's a very kind of difficult pill to swallow right for most people i mean at minimum i don't even need an individualism i just need that the state is your biggest problem so just being anti-state would be a great start no but like right. to, to you know the state's also providing food stamps yeah it's right? also it's and also looks like it always looks like the easiest way to a solution to any any problem right we'll just force the government to do something about it mm-hmm. right and and then there's also the bifurcation of the community and what the community needs versus the leaders of that community think are the solutions. So like, for example, a lot of the drug wars actually prosecuted in the 1990s, especially by black leaders, right? At the expense of the black community, because it was just a misdiagnosis. If we just criminalize them more, it'll go away and it won't ravage our communities as much. Unfortunately, that was the wrong diagnosis. Sure. Well, I'm sure we could go down this, this track for a long time. Please and stop a, me. And it's a fascinating, I mean, it's a fascinating <laughs> track. It's not one you hear a lot of. I'm incredibly uncomfortable with this topic. <laughs> uh, well, I was going to say, it's not one you hear a lot of, particularly from folks that look like you. Yeah, right. You know, and maybe people, you know, don't take you, don't take your as uh, your opinion as, uh, you know, strongly as they might take Thomas Sowell's opinion, but you are very knowledgeable on this topic and I respect that. One thing you might be more knowledgeable on, uh, given your archetype here, is uh, Russia and the Wagner story. <laughs> Good transition, man. You were nailing it. Do we want to switch to that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, no, it's, I was, was kind of hoping, Dave, do you have any uh, book call-outs for Thomas Sowell uh, based on what you were talking about? Black, redneck, white liberal. It was great. That's nice. good. I, I, I can't. I'm not, I'm not. I'm spacing them all off the top of my head. He's got so many. The guy well, is so prolific. He just wrote a book on charter schools. like, And he's like 80. I mean, I mean, he could be president well, right now. I mean, now. he was he talking to a young Joe Biden, so he has to be. He, he is. He's, 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 he's old on Joe Biden, I bet. And he's still sharp. As well, and, and he's, yeah, he's old and guy. he grew up in Harlem. Like he grew up in, in yeah. rough, in rough situations. Like I know there, there was stories about that. I've heard him say in interviews about, uh, you know, like hearing gunshots and he was like sleeping out on like the fire escape and things like that. And there's just gunshots going down below. Like, like he's from, he's from the hood in Harlem. <laughs> Yeah, he's he's uh, got the the cred, and he's and he broke himself out of that. So, if anyone's listening and they're like, "Man, I need a better grip on basic economics," Thomas Sowell's basic economics is wonderful. It's a great survey across everything. It touches all the major knowledge, fundamental like how to think about the economy questions more so than here's a supply and demand graph, and you know we're gonna weigh dead weight loss by calculating the area. He doesn't. There's 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 math in there, but it's not that kind. Of, it's it's mostly almost universally just explaining how the economy works and how to think about it in a principles based way. So um, basic economics is always where to start. Awesome. Yeah. So let's talk, let's talk about the Russia story. Yeah. So uh, it was like th- during the time we were recording last <laughs> week, this was all going down. So we didn't know it was happening. We couldn't talk about it. 
David, take it away. Yeah, so we're going to get this post-production issue a little ironed out so you guys get our news closer to when it comes oh, out. You got you to throw me under the bus, hey, man, don't you? Hey, you hit me on vaping last week. So. Uh, hey. <laughs> hey, I, I'm going to be helping uh, smooth out the post-production. I'm pretty today, sure so. I cut that out on your behalf. No, you didn't. Oh, I didn't. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's cool. Well, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, but, that, but this, yeah, you're right. This We were literally talking last week and this started hitting. And then over that weekend, like I was... <laughs> Elon Musk like posted some some meme of like people who are staying up all night watching that. That was me. Like I was <laughs> the entire time. Okay, so this is what's interesting here is it's both like interesting from like the Russian perspective, but looking at the way the media related to it tells you a tremendous amount about our media and about the about the media sphere. Can, before we go into the analysis of it, can we lay the groundwork of what yeah. happened? Yeah. Well, effectively, um, you know, since. The reason why I was starting that way is because I wanted to say first how it was reported, and then I want to say what happened. Okay. <laughs> how so it was reported. Out of nowhere, this wonderful Nazi suddenly turns into a terrible Nazi, suddenly turns into this wonderful patriot for democracy. And now this man, Hold who on. was once but a mere hot dog vendor, is now going to take on Putin himself. In a one-on-one knife duel in Moscow. Is that fair? Is that is that a good summary? This is a yeah, great yeah. trailer for some kind of <laughs> strange movie. But I have to back up. You, do you want me to cut out the fact that you just called him a wonderful Nazi? No. What I meant was he was wonderful former Nazi. That's okay. what I meant to say. No, like he, he's just I, because it was that's what was so frustrating. Because I like Googled the guy's name is like Nazi. And I was like, why is everyone all excited about, about him? Pergosian. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Was he was that? the leader of the Wagner group. Right. He's, he's the mercenary group. Wagner he's was a Nazi, so he's named it after a composer who was associated with Nazis, etc. Okay. Yeah, he, he's on. just the guy that they outsource their war crimes to. That's yeah. all. He's a wonderful beacon of, of democracy. <laughs> well, that's that's good how, guy. <laughs> that's how the media was like. You know, okay, so it, it boiled down to a very simple like Wagner group. Good bet because they're against Putin now, right? Even though they've been like some of the frontline soldiers and all this stuff. Yeah, I, I, hold on. This is getting very convoluted. <laughs> oh, I sorry. think we need to lay the groundwork. All right, okay? all right. So the actual so, hold story. On, hold on. Let all me right. let me just see what I can do and then you fill in the gaps, okay? Because yeah. this is this is getting this is a lot. Russia's fighting Ukraine. We've got that much. The Wagner Group <laughs> has been fighting on behalf of Russia against Ukraine, correct? As a mercenary group, a private army effectively. And, right. and they put a lot of like the uh, prisoners and stuff like that. Like it's it's your your way out. Okay, you kind of get put into this mercenary. Yeah. Right. Think think of them as our Blackwater. Okay, sure, yeah, exactly. Their Blackwater. Uh, private private mercenary group. Are you Russian? No. Are not you, even are you an bit. undercover Russian? No. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, so so Wagner Group is fighting on behalf of Russia against Ukraine. Private mercenary group also apparently contains prisoners. Great. They were on Russia's side, and then all of a sudden. He switches and he's marching towards Moscow, right? Why did he do that? And uh, and you can clarify how it was reported and then what, yeah. what the actual so facts So what was reported was, look at this thing that's happening. Isn't this great? It wasn't reported and it was really weird because we couldn't find a lot of great sourcing on this. I was actually super confident on it until I actually saw RFK repeat it a few days later. And then it became mainstream after that and, a lot, and I got a lot more sourcing was that a couple of months ago, the Russian government had said, hey, all you private military corporations, you now have to fold into the reporting architecture and everything of the Russian military. Effectively, he was trying to take over. Yeah, nationalizing. They're nationalizing the mercenary yeah. groups. It's okay. important to understand, too, that the Wagner itself, Wagner or Wagner, whatever, is is a creation of Putin, right? So like this dude, 
Piozin. Like you read his biography, it's wild, man. Like he was like selling hot dogs in Moscow, and then he had like a little restaurant, and then Putin went to the restaurant one time, and then yada yada yada. He's now in charge of one of the most you know notorious private military contractors in the world, running around Africa and the Middle East, killing people. Crazy. It's wild. It's. I, it doesn't read like it can be true. And I wouldn't believe it if it wasn't so confirmed by so many different media sources over such a long period of time. It's, 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 it's completely bizarre. So anyways, so they, they say, Hey, you got to do this all by July. And you know, there's that like integrate into the Russian military. Yeah. Like July 1st was the deadline. And then, and then of course we had a lot of uncertainty, right? Because the internet was shut down in Russia when this all happened. And that was very like, boom, sudden, no internet in Russia. Right. So we would get this stuff out by, you know, satellite phone and other kind of non main internet, um, streams. And then what we had was, okay. So, uh, I can't pronounce these names. Pyrgyzhin. Prigozhin. 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 That's right. Basically, what he was saying is that, one, you have to separate what he says from what he's doing, right? So there's the real reason, which is we don't want to be part of the Russian military, potentially. That's number one reason. Two, he said, hey, y'all shelled me last week, and that sucked, right? Okay, so what's that? He got got attacked. Yeah, he got attacked by friendly fire by being shelled by other Russian troops. By accident or on purpose? That was not unclear. He he makes it seem like it was on purpose, and it would suit his books, right, to make it seem like it was on purpose because of this. He obviously didn't come out and say, hey, you guys want to follow us in the Russian military, and we don't like that, so we're we're leaving. That's stupid, right? That wouldn't win the messaging war, right? Mm -hmm. The guy's playing a game. Mm -hmm. So he also said, hey, the... um, the, the secretary of the Ministry of Defense is lying to Putin. He doesn't actually know what's going on on the ground. I'm going to march to to Moscow to tell Putin what's really going on. Notice he never said a thing about overthrowing Putin, but the U.S. you know media elite pretty much said, this guy's going to take out Putin right in this coup. When you say coup, you don't mean, hey, I'm going to correct the record on the reports being given to the president. A coup means overthrowing the government. So what the heck was the, was the media reporting? When they report as a coup, I don't know what that doesn't make any sense. It's not a coup, right? Am I well, right? It seems here? like they were just implying a lot. Yeah, right. It was like this is this is good because Putin bad, and, and and it might have been some of like the immediate media cycle stuff, like people get over their skis because of that. And and it, even for me, like the big fear, the wrong people get the wrong things at the wrong time, and someone in radical and and there were there are there's like there's radical factions within Russia basically that have been saying. For the last you know year now, hey, we really need to just drop a nuke on Kiev and just get that done with because people aren't afraid of nukes anymore and we need to make them afraid again. Like that's a real thing going on in Russia. I've read it. Damn. Um, and I'm I've read the translated Russian things about that. Yeah, like 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 their their Brian Stelters on their like corporate news media will be saying things like this. Like, that's a terrifying yeah. thought that there are other Brian Stelters. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why that was the name. <laughs> they're Don Lemon. Just they're Don. They're, 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 they're Rachel Maddows. <laughs> right. Wow. Okay. Even more terrifying than an actual nuke being dropped on an actual city that there are other Brian Stelters. But but seriously, to back to that, that's awful. That there are people who are like, hey, we just need to do this because. We need to reassert that this is something to be afraid of. We need to use this to assert our authority, our dominance, our power in this conflict. Anybody who is on the pro-Ukrainian side right now needs to think about that, mm-hmm. that eventuality, that, that they might do that if, if, if the situation doesn't improve. Additionally, that if you're in the West, what happens when the, the alarm goes off and a nuke's been deployed and it's flying in the two-minute flight from Moscow 
or someplace in Russia to Kiev and you're in America and you say, we have a missile in the air. We think it's a nuke. Do we deploy? And you press the button and you have a thousand, 1800 something nukes fly towards Russia. And then Russia goes, Oh, the Americans are launching 2,800 nukes fly out of Russia towards America. That's the escalatory spiral. And that's the ending of the West period. And that's how fast that goes. Yeah. Is it's one minutes. in the air and it's probably a nuke. We, we're not sure, but do we do it or do we not do it? Right. That's all it takes. That's all it is takes. The, is that two minutes? Theoretically, minute. right? Theoretically. Like, like, like in theory, the, the, the problem with escalatory spirals, and we, we ran into this a whole bunch of times in the, in the Cold War, and that's, that's our reference point for understanding these things, is there were several times when we were like calling up the Kremlin and be like, hey, did you launch that news? Like, no, it was an accident. It, I mean, like, and, and like what happens when you call Biden and be like, yeah, we launched the nuke, Biden. We're nuking Kiev. I hope you got your guys out in time. If that happens, what happens? So that's the danger of a actual coup, right? Because yeah. you don't know who takes that, who fills that vacuum, right? It could be someone in the ultra-nationalist, you know, like the, the person that everyone claims Putin is might actually get control of the coats. That's the real danger, right? Because everyone says Putin's a crazy person who doesn't know what's going on but if he was you would think he would have already just like launched a new right 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 and, that, and that's like ginning up fear that's american mili- media but i i do think that there's so there that's the danger mm-hmm. one of the interesting that piojan also said is that the war was started under false pretenses under pressure from the defense establishment within russia which is also really interesting because that was taken like gospel also by the american military right or american media which was saying that oh okay this the whole cause us belly eye of the war of NATO expansion and the Nazification of Ukraine. I don't think anyone ever believes that Ukraine's actually occupied by Nazis in the sense of like the whole power structure is corrupted by Nazism, right? That said, there were, as we reported a couple of weeks ago, there were these military organizations like the Azov Battalion that were conducting a quasi unofficial. I know, no, it was, I, I would, that's not right. An unofficial genocide against Russian civilian populations in the Donbass prior to this that was supposed to be stopped by the Minsk Accords and then wasn't stopped by the Minsk Accords on either side. And so it just escalated in this place. It was, we were in an escalatory spiral and we tried to interrupt it with two different Minsk Accords and we couldn't do it Mm. because the West was largely conflicted about it. It was like, well, we want to, we want Russia to, to kind of get overbalanced and to spend a bunch of money so we don't have to. And we also don't want all these people to die and we're going to kind of split the difference. And then there's the faction of, of Germany and France want peace, but America doesn't, you know, those, those, those kind of dynamic as well. So, um, the, the media pretty much basically said, you know, for a long time, the Wagner group was a bunch of Nazis. Wagner was a composer in Nazi Germany who was very popular and they all flipped and they said, well, they're not a neo-Nazi organization anymore. They're now anti-Putin. Therefore, they're good guys. Um, and this was a great time. We would, don't need to pull it up, but seeing the memes of like the NPC character with the back head flap open yeah. and the chip of like Wagner bad coming out and Wagner good going in. Yeah. It was just well, like, before any of this so happened, the average person so, didn't know anything about Wagner. So wait, like, you didn't know, know who it wait, was. You're, right? tell, you're telling me that right now. In this war over Ukraine, there's one side has a group of Nazis that are fighting on their behalf, and the other side has a group of Nazis that are fighting on their behalf. <laughs> Whoa. Well, that, and that's the Whoa. thing with the Wagner group, right? Is because it's like, if you're a Russian nationalist, are you a Nazi? When the Nazis invaded Russia, 
Well, like like all of these are all of these are just magic words yeah. used to put spells <laughs> on the public. They don't mean anything. They're Why just is... magic words that get people triggered into certain modes of thinking. Yeah, and in Wagner, I don't know anything about as a composer. Right, the whole the whole premise that it's a neo Nazi organization is just premised on the idea that Wagner was a neo Nazi, therefore, or was a Nazi, therefore, anyone who names their organization Wagner or Wagner. If you're Russian slash Ukrainian or German, it is is an is a Nazi organization. I I'm not confident about that. I don't know. I don't know. I I mean, I read like three different things on this Piotr guy just because I couldn't believe what I read about him, and none of it was substantiated by him saying that this is what it was. And for all I know, Wagner was just he just liked the music. I don't, I don't know. Who knows? So, but the important thing is that they, what the media didn't immediate report report at all was that he was trying to overthrow Putin. In fact, from the beginning, he was claiming that the Secretary of Defense was lying to Putin, and that and that is the real manipulation here. From I can see from the American West media, and why so few people have confidence in them is because in an incredibly urgent, you know, like stressful situation, they're like, "Oh, it's a coup," just like all the other Russian coups. It's like they but just is reported he, something like very unsubstantiated in a moment of of extreme that? uncertainty. Yeah, at worst, it's a bad summary. At best, it's like, or sorry, at best, it's a bad summary. At worst, it's like an outright manipulation, right? Because a coup is to overthrow the power structure. If you're just saying, and I, I looked at the video, translated video, and it said nothing about Putin. In fact, it was defending Putin from his defense minister hmm. and saying he's being misled. And you could read that as like, well, he was he was being, he was playing Political. the media game. Yeah, But if you're marching to to moscow to take out the head of the the state which is what a coup is what do you do i mean i mean what are you doing here it's obviously not the right word right so and i didn't know the right word i'm just like trying to suss out what the hell's going on sure well Well, i mean if you're going to take out the head of state do you march in such a like ceremonial kind of way and like make it very public or is it something that's a little bit more like clandestine they they did allegedly take down seven helicopters though right I think it was seven. Right. And there was, there was some, some troops, uh, Russian military troops, troops that were taken out. It's important to know too, that like 80%, 90% of the Wagner group troops never left their assignment, their, their posts. Right. Mm-hmm. This is only a small component of it from what I've read. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's weird. Cause we kind of think about it like these huge numbers, right. That this was like a troop column of a hundred thousand Troops marching down the no, road it was like to a Moscow. Few thousand total he, in all of Wagner Group. It's right, like a few thousand. right. So we yeah. kind of think about these these proportions that aren't right because Wagner total in like 2019 had like six thousand total employees. That's what I read. That's well, official uh, government. Ac- according government to documents. Wikipedia, I yeah. don't know if you want to. It's now fifty thousand plus as of December twenty twenty two. Those are all the. Those are all those prisoners. Yeah, those, right? that, that seems. Yeah, that seems. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if they hired while they were going to go conduct a national invasion. You think they pay pretty well? Uh, the, the, here, here's one of the things. <laughs> probably that, better than the. Not if you're a prisoner, though. I don't think it. Here, here's well. one. Here's one of the things. <laughs> and this minimum is some, wage. The, the, Evans <laughs> losing it back here. <laughs> here's one of the things, and this is just something that I just kind of went down a little journey while you were talking on. A lot of the information is coming out of Bellingcat, and Bellingcat's like a psyop organization out of the Netherlands, and mm. that's what they run the Elon clip. Yeah, run, yeah, and, and that was the whole thing with that uh, inner with that interview. I remember. Uh, who did the interview? I can't remember. Uh, regardless, I remember, yeah, Elon was just saying, you know what Bellingcat does? They're a PSYOP organization. And it's just like, I just went through this and it's just like, it goes to Bellingcat and 
the amount of things that they've been the uh, primary source on is when you just come into it, it's like the weapons, the chemical weapons in Syrian civil war, um, Malaysia airlines flight 17. <laughs> like it just, it, it's just interesting. It's just interesting that there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of fog of war and right. a lot of psyops mm. probably going on on some of this stuff. Right. Right. There's a lot of things that we just don't know. I know I was seeing on Twitter, I was seeing a lot of information. I was seeing a lot of videos from like, Wagner troops that are like, no, I'm still pro Putin and things like that. Like, mm-hmm. just be careful with what you're watching and 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 uh, kind of getting super emotionally invested in. There's a lot of things that we just don't know. Right? I think that's really good advice, and I think that's probably the key takeaway here is, especially in the heat of the moment, don't go throwing yourself into. Well, I was feeling this way about this person or group, and now because of the media's reporting on this in this very tense moment of incredible uncertainty i now feel very strongly this other way like don't let yourself be a windsock for the american media right that's just it's not very becoming you know and 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 it only stands to backfire really right like you got to just take some time keep the things at arm's length like we've been trying to do here right mm-hmm. yeah. yeah it's not I mean, very becoming no, that's, <laughs> i like that way no, no, that's <laughs> You know, you just say coming. You're and you better. Laugh. You're better than that. <laughs> no, it's just, it's just not yeah, you're better. Do better. Do better. <laughs> um, but well, I guess we haven't really gotten into the aftermath of yes. all this stuff, too, is because now um, Prigozhin is he was essentially pardoned and he's given a vacation in Belarus. Um, you know, where the, he's char- going to charming way probably in with an early ending. I can't imagine. I mean, come on. He's no. going to fall off. He's going to die in a tragic boating accident. <laughs> he lost all his Bitcoin in that boat. But there is yeah, still a criminal it. investigation going on over him from the last reports that I saw. So in Russia, in Russia. So he's still like, it's, it's a strange situation, right? Cause it was like a compromise to end it, uh, kind of unify and all that kind of in, stuff. In a, in a lot of ways, I feel like it's intentionally vague on what's actually happening right yes. now. Cause like there is, a, there's all sorts of different theories on what happened here, right? Like mm-hmm. there, there are, there's the people that are theorizing that this was actually a plan between Putin and Prigozhin, right? There's mm-hmm. the people that are like, Oh no, he actually went in, went full coup, right? Like, like there's a lot of, again, fog of war here right mm-hmm. now. So like, I think that things are intentionally vague, but my understanding is that Putin announced saying that in order to heal, in order to mend the wounds of this thing right now, uh, he's going to be pardoned, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think that was the reason in the broker deal between Russia and Belarus. Right, know? right. It was just it was just that only after that, I read a report that still said that there was a criminal investigation going on against him. So I don't know. I don't know. But I mean, I, yeah, he gets to go there. Wagner troops may leave. Uh, to Belarus too, if they were kind of part of that or they want to leave, they don't want to be part of a war anymore uh, or sign on to the traditional military. So at the end of the day, conclusion the, the conclusion is Putin got what he wanted. The private military contractors being folded into the government reporting infrastructure. Uh, the the um, Russian people, a lot of the Russian institutions kind of had their loyalty tested and overwhelmingly they were all kind of stuck with Putin. It looks like, I mean, I, I, I kind of would like it if there were more dissent, but I mean, you're a, unitary state with a dictator who is known for killing his opposition. I can't imagine how you would make a different decision. Right? I'm like, if I was Russian, I'd be like, sir, Mr. Putin. I mean, like, I don't, I can't imagine. I like you're in that moment and you have this opportunity to, to rise up and throw over a coup. If that was really what was happening, you'd think there would be a lot more going on. Well, and, but, but again, though, I mean, you're, we're dealing with a, obviously a very manipulative Western media who is has its own narrative and and the other side of the narrative is coming from a obviously very manipulated state media in Russia so it's like can we believe anything that we're seeing or hearing coming out of 
well, this situation. Right. <laughs> it's remember, this is war. Like if everybody was being truthful, like that would be bad. That would be bad to just give everybody your secrets on right. what you're doing. Right? Exactly. Right. <laughs> like, so, so can we believe anything right. that we're seeing or hearing out well, of this whole situation? I, I think, I think, I think we do know is that there was an act to fold them into the military. There was uh, this rebellion slash thing that happened where this private military contractor did not want to do that and push back. I think the soundest evidence we have is he has an incentive and he responded to that incentive by trying to say, I'm going to march on Moscow. Right. And he, and there was you know, like, we have the video evidence and the photographic evidence of conflicts that happened because of that. And now it's kind of like, there's a deal that he says happened, but it gets very vague after that. I mean, I don't know. We haven't had any, as far as I know, and I haven't seen in a few days, I haven't checked, but the, there hasn't been any more videos from Pergozin about, you know, his status and what he's got going on. Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. I got another surprise issue if you want to talk about it, though. We got 15 minutes, so you got to leave. All right. So the ATF, this is, okay. So it's funny because we started out with a bunch of white pills today. We got a bunch of great stuff that happened at the Supreme Court. Very interesting. Great. The U.S. Senate let us down again. So the U.S. Senate voted against a House resolution. So what happens is the ATF puts in a new regulation, says, hey, if you got a pistol brace, you got to register with the government. Now, for, for the entirety of American jurisprudence, Gun registration has been against the law. When you go in and you apply for a gun, very specifically, it is written so that you get the background check, and the background check is not held by the government; it's held by the um, the organization, the the, the 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 seller of the gun, uh, and they're not they're they're not instructed to like give it to the government at any given time. So, but if you have a pistol brace, and a pistol brace is like a brace that goes on the end of a pistol that straps it to your arm, right, and so you can pew pew, right. More Probably. accurately than you otherwise could with a handgun, typically. Yeah, if you will, and it's that's the idea. And it's great. It's great, especially if you're missing another arm, right? One of the one of the sell points for pistol braces is is that if you can't really brace with the other hand, it's mm. it's a good brace for that. I see. And it's especially popular amongst military veterans who are disabled in some way from their other arm. So um, the ATF said, "Hey, we're going to have this new. We're going to ban it." And then it was like, "Maybe we'll not ban it. Maybe we're just going to register them all." And we're kind of in this weird thing, and the regist- the banning actually got held up by the courts, but the registration's kind of moving forward. And so the House Republicans passed a resolution that was said, "We don't want this. Get rid of it." And the Senate voted it down. Um, one of the great things here is we have the Senate Democrats, and this is this is just what happens every time. And I'm not I'm not the biggest gun guy. I'm a, I'm a, I I I've, I've gun culture in my blood. But it's not like it's not like the thing that really wakes me up in the morning as much as my brothers and my family. But there's nothing more delicious than Republic than Democrats trying to talk about guns and why they should be banned. <laughs> oh, yes. They're so funny. And uh, so here's a great Senator Dick Durbin talking from he's a he's a senator from Illinois talking about uh, the uh, pistol brace. We all know that because of the ammunition magazines that can be strapped onto so many pistols that these become automatic weapons similar to AK-47s. <laughs> pistols with stabilizing braces have a reputation in this modern America, though they have been formally uh, forbidden and prohibited, regulated for almost 90 years. What the hell is he even saying? We all- <laughs> he doesn't know. Okay, so he thinks that a pistol brace, which stabilizes the firearm to your forearm, makes it such that you can, you can now turn a semi-automatic pistol... <laughs> Into an automatic pistol? 
Yeah. It's like they took the bump stock message in the pistol and they just smashed it together and said, like, this is a good speech. Have at it, Dick. Tell me good, good you've luck. never touched a firearm <laughs> without telling me you've never touched a firearm. That is there more? Can we watch more? Yeah, there's that so is, many in, oh, that, in, that, in that Twitter feed oh, that I had. Let's keep there's going. There's so many because oh, all is, of them are just talking so, out their ass. It's so I mean, hilarious. well, the funniest thing is like, I mean, even just the tiniest bit of research, <laughs> the tiniest bit, Google it. You would know you're sounding like a freaking idiot. And now he's like on the record on C-SPAN all over the internet. The thing is, like his constituents don't care. Goon. It's just pistol brace bad because the NRA is for it. Right. And no, I mean, and, but the, I guess the problem is though, that yeah. the people that are going to listen and take what he's saying as truth, right. Aren't going to do that research. Right. right. They're just going to regurgitate that right. false narrative and, and think for themselves that pistol braces are just, you know, Satan's gift to people that want to shoot up schools. <laughs> and, and that's why you should share the Liberty Portal podcast with your friends and family and hit that notification bell and like and subscribe so we can get this message out. One of the things is that registration is so clearly unconstitutional. And obviously we have this by both Heller versus DC in 2008 and the later case, which I'm currently spacing, that pretty much says like, hey, if you're trying to get the government to, re- if you're going to get in private individuals to register their firearms, it's the same as banning them. Because as soon as you give the government a giant list of who has firearms and who doesn't, obviously that's sketchy, right? Who do they go at first if, if there's a problem with the government? Well, it's the guys who own the guns. Well, if you give them a registration, obviously that's a, that's a de facto banning of your and limitation of your Second Amendment rights. So it is, um, it is such an obvious problem. Uh, of uh, an obvious constitutional problem, but they're going forward with it anyways. The ATF is going to do it just like they did the student loans, just like they're doing everything else. They're just going to go throw it at the courts, get it jammed up in the courts so they can say they did something and raise money on it. Well, and and I'll uh, reiterate something I said last week because I was just in Canada not too long ago talking with my Canadian family about still the, sorry about that you the, had to do that. I I'm sorry too. I came back with like their Canadian diseases and things. <laughs> <laughs> the stain of communism was strong. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but one of the things that they kind of explained to me what was going on with the handgun ban was this it's they're not banning handguns they're banning the buying and selling of handguns and also like the inheritance of handguns Mm -hmm. so it once you have your handgun registered you are the last owner of that handgun and has to be turned in when you die you can't sell it off you can't give it off to your kids so it's not it's not an active handgun ban but it's the actual the uh, transaction involved with handguns, and that's how Grandpa lived for a thousand years. Yeah, right there, Grandpa never died. Yeah, or, or it's it's unfortunate he lost all his handguns in a boating accident. That's right. right? That's right. <laughs> Pretty typical. Yep. Yeah, yeah. But it's it just it, it is just always remember of like where these things lead. Like the Second Amendment exists in America, but at the end of the day, it's just on a piece of paper. Legislators will do things, and they will make bans and. The Constitution only is just it's much more of like a suggestion to a lot of people. It's like nobody actually cares about the Constitution anymore. Like the Second Amendment is dying and has died for a long period of time right here. And like things will continue to progress in this direction, uh, it seems like, unless legitimate action is kind of taken against this uh, progression of being a very anti-gun in our culture. There's a couple of those, right? One is like increasing gun culture, which is making it safe, making it obviously more friendly to the individual who is not necessarily in gun culture to get involved, right? That's one of it. Uh, black gun matter, black, black guns matter. Uh, and Colin Noir and all those guys doing a great job. Oh, with black and Maj Ture just got arrested. 
Really? Do. Yeah, like a week ago, I if I remember right. For what? Uh, he was on a call. I haven't looked into it all, but I believe he was like on a call with Tom Woods or something when the cops came up to him and uh, arrested him. I don't know the the story of here. He's like a he's part of he's kind of like the leader of the Black Guns Matter out yeah. in Philadelphia, I believe, uh-huh, uh-huh. is where he's from. But he got arrested. I don't know what the current status is. I haven't really looked into it at all. Oh, but wow. but so it, it like, had to do uh, with gun stuff. Really? So. Man. I mean, that's like his main issue. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah, educating people is. in the inner city in, in uh, Philadelphia on, on gun, gun safety, safety and things like that. Yeah. yeah. And then and then there's other ones like, you know, participating in like the kind of institutions that participate in and well, sorry, raise general consciousness and awareness of the good uses of firearms in a free society. And, you know, and then lastly, that's it's, it's a civil institution, stuff like that. And it's technology. I, in fact, uh, Michael Malice had. Uh, the founder of Defense Distributed uh, on Cody Wilson, Cody Wilson on and talking about the ghost gun and 3D printing guns and stuff like that, which is all very important for the overall firmness and institution of the Second Amendment in the United States. And if you don't know who that is, you definitely check him out and uh, support his work. I believe to further kind of follow up on that, I believe Maj has been bailed out. But uh, yeah, he was arrested Wednesday. Wow. Two weeks ago, two, two Wednesdays ago, I believe. Does it stay at the charges? During a live interview with Tom Woods. <laughs> yeah. On suspicion of carrying a concealed weapon without a license. Huh. Well, interesting. We're going to have to follow up on that next week because David's got to get out of here and do his day job. But if you're watching at home, we really appreciate you. Share, review us wherever it is that you're watching. If it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, just drop us a five-star review right this second. If you're on YouTube, give us that thumbs up. We appreciate you very much. And hit the notification bell. And hit that notification bell so you never miss a new episode. Thanks so much. See you next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Liberty Portal podcast. For more episodes, news, and Liberty-focused content, visit libertyportal.com. And be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you liked what you heard on the show, we appreciate you sharing it with your friends and giving us a review on your podcast platform of choice. 